He is risen. He is risen indeed. And today is Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And I just want to welcome everyone to uh, just worshiping God together. Let's take this time before we start the message to pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Aid your servant now in bringing forth the word of God, that he may glorify you, and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, the passage for today's message comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verses 3 to 5. And if you have a pew Bible in front of you, you can find that on page 953. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. When you have found it, please rise from your seats in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. My friends, this is the unfailing, inerrant word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is one of the few times we get to worship with our children, and they are not dismissed to the children's program, and uh, if you are normally going to a children's program and can't understand what I'm saying, then praise the Lord. Uh, you're here because we want to worship together with you. And we also want you to pay attention to how your parents worship. So look at them intently and follow along. But happy Resurrection Sunday, everyone. And while we celebrate the Lord's resurrection the Savior of our lives every Sunday and the reality of our resurrection every day, it is on this particular holiday season that we recognize the yearly tradition of remembering all the events that led to Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and ultimately his resurrection from the grave. You see, Man was created by God, and he created them male and female. He made them to flourish and take dominion over this earth. That means God created humans to have rule and authority. But he gave them this one rule. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What that meant was that this man that God had created was to rule and have authority, dominion, but it was to be under the rule and authority of God. And it was the serpent, the deceiver, that went to the woman and said, Did God actually say? Did God actually say is another way of saying, Why should you be under the rule of God? Did God actually say means that maybe you should, quote, throw off your shackles and be, quote, unquote, free to do whatever you want. Did God actually say, is really saying, why should you listen to God when you could be your own gods? The woman fell for this lie, took of its fruit, and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Our first parents willingly disobeyed God, thinking that if they did what they wanted, they would be like gods too. But they didn't turn into gods. They found out, rather, that they would be caught, punished, kicked out of the garden and the presence of God, and eventually die. That's the curse. Since then, humans all throughout history have been struggling to find a way out of this curse, but to no avail. Every single person before us has died, and they are still buried to the ground this very day. Well, everyone except one, but he's the hero of the story, so we'll get to him. But no matter how strong, how talented, how smart, how rich you were, you still died. No one escapes the clutches of death because that was the consequence of the curse. People are still trying to find a way out or around death to this very day, trying to use their intelligence strength, wealth, and other resources. But ever since that beginning, death became inevitable. The sin of our first father was passed on to every single one of us thereafter. But you see, even from the beginning, God has set eternity in the heart of man. And so people ultimately long for the things beyond the temporary. And sure, people still want to become rich, strong and smart. But what happens when we look at the world? What happens when we see people achieve penultimate levels of feats showing their prowess? Does that lead to this person's satisfaction? And I dare say that they will never be satisfied. And that is precisely because we have been made for and we ultimately need the eternal. But with sin comes 
not only death, but corruption as well. Our minds were affected. Our sense of morality is tainted with decaying bodies and depraved minds. We walk this earth, and maybe ever so faintly, we walk this earth knowing that we were made for something more than just this. You see, even in our sinful state, God has given us mercies. This is what theologians call common grace, to see that there are actually good things in life and also bad things in life. Good things like the sun, the beautiful weather today, the rain, a meal with your loved ones, shelter, peace to enjoy, happiness, etc. But bad things also exist, like flooding, droughts, other natural disasters, hunger, poverty, being separated from the ones that you love, war, anguish, etc. We want the good, we hate the bad, but how do we know the reality of what is good and what is bad? You know, how can I really know if I watered the plants or if my brain is just playing tricks on me? And this is what philosophers would try to um, <clears throat> figure out or at least articulate in the thousands of years they have been philosophizing. How can I really know if I did something or if I just imagined it? I mean, weren't there times when you thought that your parents called you and you said, did you call me? And they didn't. How do you know if you really watered your plants or if your brain is just playing tricks on you? Well, you know because one day you'll come out and all the plants would have withered and died. Then you know you haven't been watering them. See, people have gained this most basic understanding that if I do good things, it will, in the very least, it will point to the eternal. And if I do evil things, it would hasten death. And the philosophies and religions of all eras and all times have tried to come up with ways in which they can achieve the ultimate or life immortal. Myths, Legends, even modern stories of superheroes capture this idea of immortality because ever since death was introduced, there has been a place in our souls that even if it that be infinitesimal, it's still present. There's something in our souls. It's as if God did create us in his image he also put a longing in there for the infinite. But if there was a way to achieve the infinite, we have not found it. People still perish today. You know, people think that we're so much more advanced now, right? We have so much technology, science, comfort, medicine. But we actually don't live that much longer then the people in ancient Egypt, which would have been about 4,500 years ago. In ancient Egypt, the life, average lifespan was in the low 70s. People think that in the ancient world, people must have lived until like maybe 30 or something. 
This is not true. But what about now? With all these technological advances, are we seeing lifespans increasing by the decades? No, we don't. The average lifespan is still in the 70s, albeit in the upper 70s. But I would imagine if we counted abortions and infanticides, that number would be drastically reduced. So what have we got to show for basically 5,500 years that we've been actually keeping records, written records that we have dug up? What have we got to show? And what we see is even now, the rebellion against God is strong. We have an array of ideas coming at us from multiple directions, causing many to doubt simple realities. We have the Marxist notion of false consciousness, and that means, and it's this idea that you are being played by the powerful. You think you're happy with your modest job? Well, that's because the evil oppressors have enslaved your mind into thinking this, and by thinking this, you're joining them in this continued oppression. There's this Nietzschean idea that you really can't determine what true morality is. You just have to deconstruct to find what the origin of that original thought was. And then when you find that, deconstruct it some more, ad infinitum, and you are left with nothing on top until you drown in that nothingness. Or the Freudian approach, what we're trying to teach our young children today in schools that everything that you think, our values, our philosophies, and even your faith, they're just from you projecting your base animal instincts, which are all buried under your current level of consciousness. And the masses would flock to these ideas, thinking that that could give them happiness. It could fill the eternal void within them. But these ideas do nothing more than foster unbelief and riddle people with anxiety. They can never live up to the promises of fulfillment that even these founders would proclaim. These founders weren't even happy, and they died sad, depressed, anxiety-ridden deaths. I find it ironic that none of these guys purporting these ideas was actually even happy. And the ones that would adopt their ideas would all be tyrants, massacre millions of their own people, ultimately spreading death and even deeper wretchedness because they thought it wasn't the idea that's bad. It's people that's bad. If you don't follow the idea, you're bad. And so they would proceed to exterminate anyone and everyone that didn't fall in line with their demands. But if you think about it, if nothing is objectively good or bad and they're all social constructs, nothing is true then. And nothing being true leads to madness. The evidence that sin and evil have corrupted to the very core of humanity is overwhelming. And it stands to state that no one throughout history has ever come up with a solution to it and its effects, save, except, for one. Easter is about the fulfillment of the promise that God gave 
even in the very beginning after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3.15. It's to the serpent God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that is what the Old Testament showed us. It showed us basically two things. One, humanity's inability to save itself through works, thus its need for a Savior. And two, what that Savior would look like. And from Adam, God was teaching his people who and what to look for. Conservatively speaking, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. The story of Jesus Christ is the meta-narrative that we see throughout the scriptures, and all these allusions of him are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Sin brought death, and we were indeed dead in our trespasses. We can only but walk in the course of this world because we have been deceived by the prince of power. Did God really say, did God actually say, is still the lie that is still felling men and women by the masses? And the scriptures go on to say that if you follow Satan, it's he then that is in work in you as you disobey God. You live by the passions of your flesh, carrying the desires of your body and mind, and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This reality is a reality that Christians, once they knew that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, changed them forever. This is something that we stand on now. This is the hinge of history. Everything stands on this resurrection. That's why we say he is risen and we respond with he is risen indeed. There's a legend that Mary Magdalene would even face Caesar of Rome and when she went up to greet him, her salutations were he is risen because everything hinges on Jesus Christ being risen from the grave. In Romans 5 eight, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in Acts 2.24, it says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. If I continue on with the Ephesians chapter 2 passage, it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. By saying he is risen, what we also know that what that implies is that those are with Jesus are also going to be risen. And this is the grace by which we have been saved through faith. This is not our own doing but it says in Ephesians chapter 2, it is the gift of God. 
By the grace of God, we who were faithless, hopeless, we were given faith. Through Christ, although once blind, we can now see. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, it says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day they, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. And through Christ, that veil is lifted so that we are able to see. And what are we able to see? That though we could not save ourselves, Christ has come to save us. He is the absolute way, the absolute truth, and the absolute life. And that without him, no one is able to go to God. And so we recognize the true depravity of our situation. Jesus even says in John 15, 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we really are dead and paralyzed. Without Christ, we are not capable of doing any God-glorifying good. And Paul would say this also in Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. But when Christ died for us, he would give us new life. And that's why, even though we were trapped in our sins, in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Romans 6.6 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And that is the culmination into this passage that we just read this morning. Praise is evoked to God because the nature of this salvation as new birth is according to the mercy of God. And this new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit as Jesus taught in the passage of John. And the Christian now has this living hope because of the resurrection of Christ. And this hope is to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading. The work that we do now is perishable. It does spoil and it will fade. But the inheritance promised to us is not that. Not only that, it's guarded by God himself. That means no one can take away the inheritance. And what does that imply? That means no one can take you away because you are due for that inheritance. You won't fall away for good because you will never be abandoned because God will guard you. That's the hope in resurrection that we have, that Christ's resurrection secures our own. When we say he is risen, yes, we are exclaiming that Christ is risen from the grave, but also it implies that we, those that are of faith, will also be raised with him to new life. That's the crux of the resurrection. He has restored humanity. He has given those a faith with a new self 
And he is preparing each and every one of us to live forever with him. And that's why Paul would say, as he closes out his first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. It's swallowed up in victory. It's completely consumed. There's nothing left of death to even taunt us or threaten us any, more, any longer. Death is consumed in victory. And that's why Paul would sing, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those that have faith in Jesus also will rise just as Jesus rose again. And those that have faith in Jesus, Jesus promises you will be given a new spirit. And that's why in this new spirit, you start to live out this new life even now. That's why when we say we are called to love, we are called to love and display it in this church. We are called to celebrate. We also display it in the church. This call to love, this call to new life is a great privilege that we have been given and it hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ surely rose again from the grave and those that put their faith in him shall not perish but have eternal life where we will also sing, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Praise be to God for his great mercies that we can now live the life that we have been made to live eternally and with God. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredible hope that we have been given in the resurrection. We pray now that we would live in this hope. That even though times may seem dark, certain seasons may pass, where it may even seem hopeless, but we know that this one historic moment in history has changed everything. And now nothing is ever hopeless and nothing is eternally dark for those that put their hope in Jesus Christ. Help us now to place our hope in you, in the resurrection, day by day, moment and moment, more and more that we may ever grow closer to our Lord and Savior until we see you face to face. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on what the Word of God has given us 
in this hope in resurrection. Let's pray.